Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Ryan Jensen, CEO and co-founder of Zenlytic, a BI tool for commerce brands that's raised $5.4 million in funding. Ryan, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brett. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? For sure. So I am uh, a big nerd, first and foremost. My background is I've jumped back and forth between two sides of the nerd table. So I was an engineer, uh, ran an undergrad that I quickly kind of went and got an MBA and worked as a venture investor for like six, seven years in London. Then I went back and did a master's degree in data science. And after that, founded Zenlytic with my co-founder, Paul, who I met at that master's degree. So I guess by the, there's like, there's an old Peter Thiel rule, right? Where it's like, if you're valuing a business, you, uh, what do you add a million dollars for every engineer and you subtract a million dollars for every MBA. So I, um, I guess I'm net positive because I have two engineering degrees and, and one MBA. <laughs> I love that. And from your time as a venture capitalist, what's the number one thing that you walked away with that you've applied to Zenlytic today? Yeah, that's a great question. It's so hard to choose. There's lots of things that I've taken away from that, but I feel like it will first let me just say being an investor really does help you a lot to prepare as a founder. I think probably the number one thing that I took away from it is like resilience. And you know, like when you're starting an early stage startup, it's always a roller coaster ride. Any given time in the week, there's like three or four cycles where you feel like it's like, hey, we're on top of the world, we're geniuses. And then, you know, the next day you're like, oh, we're total idiots. How could we have thought that was going to work? So it's not for the faint of heart. And I think as an investor, you know, you have a portfolio of like, you know, 10 of those companies doing that at any given time. So at some point in time, there's always a couple that are having some sort of challenge or crisis or some sort of issue, basically. And you kind of realize that's just part of the natural cadence and rhythm of, of building a startup. You know that's normal and you come in with, I guess, the ability to ride those sort of cycles. I think a lot better than someone who just jumps in not knowing what they're in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, a couple of questions that we like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and entrepreneur. First one, what CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Yeah, you know, I'm not going to say Elon Musk because I'm sure everyone says Elon Musk, even though I, I love Elon Musk. <laughs> the thing that you could really admire about Elon Musk is that he... He, he had, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank after selling PayPal, and he could have just, you know, relaxed and had a happy life. But he decided to basically bet all of that on the future of humanity for humanity's sake, which I really respect. But I'm not going to say Elon Musk. You know, and I've got to say that the person that I look up to most is probably Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs passed away just as I was starting my venture career, like the same quarter that I started pretty much. And I actually got to see his impact, you know, throughout that entire wave of you know, growth inside, especially Valley Tech, but in tech in general. I think that people that are studying today, they it's kind of been just long enough that they kind of forgot the impact that Jobs has had and they're focused on Musk. But I think a lot of the things that people still do today are attributable to him, right? And like just that perfectionist founder ethos and that relentless focus on the customer and the product. And I think a lot of the, what you'd call like the archetypical founder personality, you can trace back to him and like, I never was fortunate enough to meet him personally, but, you know, the friends of mine that have say that, like, the reality distortion field was real. And uh, 
I still don't have that kind of reality distortion deal, but I, I can respect how you know powerful that would be when you're building something like Apple. I think he's amazing, you know, for some reasons. First, because of you know those traits, the reality distortion field, the charisma, the perfection, the attention to detail. I think those are really impressive, and I think his track record just speaks for itself, right? I mean, like to have transformed multiple industries and just watching, you know, how things change, you know, when he was or wasn't with Apple, for instance, like the profound impact he had on a company at all stages of its development, all the way through to, you know, being the largest company in the world. Just kind of, uh, kind of chokes me up. It's, it's, it's really quite remarkable what he achieved. So he's, he's got to be my number one. I think there's only two in total that I remember. I've, I've, you know, categorized them as like celebrity deaths where I heard it and I was like, genuinely like very very sad and like it affected me and for some reason robin williams was one when he died i was super sad about it and then steve jobs i remember just like reading that news and just feeling like fuck like the world just like really lost someone really important i was worried for like the world that we had lost him early which like isn't very common you know when i see this type of stuff like if it's not someone i know i don't really like think about it that much but steve jobs that was a that was heavy that was really crazy 100%. 100%. I remember the day that Jobs died. And so my boss at the Venture Fund and my mentor to this day was an even bigger Jobs fan than I was at the time, right? He was, you know, I learned a lot about Jobs from him. And I remember he was just kind of like despondent. And I remember going into his office and like saying, I'm really sorry for, for the loss. And it felt like we kind of all lost somebody that day because, you know, who knows what he could have done with, with another decade or imagine if Jobs was alive today and like, what he'd be doing with the developments in AI. The Actually, the only other time that I can really point to for that, this is the nerd side of me, but I think a lot about Alan Turing. And I think Turing was about my age when he died. And, you know, he had obviously profound impacts on science, technology, you know, the outcome of World War II and like pretty great man. And I, I wonder what the world would have been like if we had had another, you know, 40 years of him dedicated to working hard to. And so like same things, the same thing for jobs as well. Just great people and uh, definitely, you know, goats, you know, <laughs> for sure. You know, last weekend I was in uh, the beautiful state and city of Omaha, Nebraska for that Warren Buffett event. So I just wanted to go ahead and watch him speak because, you know, he's getting up there. He's like 96. Charlie Munger's like 99. So they probably don't have that many years left. And I was just thinking about their age. And it's like, you know, on the topic of Elon Musk, like Elon Musk is what, like 50. These guys are like, you know, late 90s. Imagine we have another 50 years left of Elon Musk just innovating and, you know, terrorizing society probably a little bit, but overall, you know, a very, very positive impact on the world. And I don't know why that just blew my mind to think about we have, you know, hopefully even more than that, but you know, probably like 50 years left of Elon Musk innovating. And that's just, uh, I think, very exciting to see someone who's like still so young and hopefully has a lot of life left. Yeah. You know, it's actually really interesting with like all the people we've talked about here, you know, like even Turing, Jobs, Elon Musk, like all, all of those people, they were all kind of shit disturbers, right? Like all of them are controversial characters, right? Like Steve Jobs, like famously called my iconoclast or whatever. And like, you know, it's interesting how all of them have to like ruffle feathers a little bit, but uh, that might just be an essential part of making a really, really big dent in the universe. Yeah, for sure. Have you watched the movie, The Pirates of Silicon Valley by chance? Yeah, <laughs> I do. I love that movie. I watched that movie <laughs> before the ending was written by, you know, Steve Jobs' return. I remember that movie ending with, the famous scene of like, you know, Bill Gates sort of like mm-hmm. looming over jobs. And they kind of ended that. It's like, okay, uh, you know, that's the end. Microsoft beats Apple. That's the end of the story. But it's funny because that movie came out before Apple's sort of big comeback, right? Yeah, I think it was like 90. When did it come out? I have to look again, but I, I just watched that recently. A friend introduced it to me and it was so good. It was like uh, the original like social network is kind of what it felt like if you remember that movie. Yeah, no, 100%. These, these movies are, are, are fascinating. I love this stuff. So, uh, yeah, agreed. 
What about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact? And it, it can't be the Steve Jobs book. <laughs> There's a couple that come to mind. I think probably the real classic one. Uh, it's, it's not a huge surprise, but Lean Startup. Huge, mm-hmm. huge fan of Lean Startup. I think a lot of those lessons, it's funny, we've, we've had this whole sort of cycle where first that was like, you know, when that book came out, everyone is trying to like sort of replicate what was happening at Lean Startup. And, you know, I remember reading that book thinking about how your startup's runway should not be measured in dollars or months or anything. It should be measured in number of experiments. And I read that just clicking and thinking, wow, that is really, really interesting. And just sort of pouring through the rest of the book like that, you know, just like having all those realizations. I remember that when that book came out, a bunch of people had that, you know, same enthusiasm. And I was quoted crazily. And then for a while, it actually became kind of just the backdrop of sort of how you run a tech business, right? And, you know, people still talk about product market fit and stuff, but like a lot of the the ideas that the book popularized had become just sort of canonical without people thinking about it, you know, being, you know, originally sort of presented in that book. And now I feel like people are kind of slowly starting to forget those lessons. And you're hearing less and less of these terms talked about with a couple exceptions like PMF, but like, I think it's due for a resurgence. And I feel like, you know, we need some people sort of posting, you know, more quotes and more ideas from that book to like bring people back onto that ethos because that's a great mm-hmm. way to start up. I want to give a special mention actually to Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. Mm-hmm. Also a controversial figure who's probably shaking things up because he's controversial, but you know, just all of the little lessons in that are very fascinating. And I, I think Peter Thiel is a very, very smart person. And I love the way that he is, you know, I think people call him a contrarian. I, I don't think he's a contrarian. I think that he's an independent. He just thinks independently, right? And it's not like he's, you know, married to an ideology or against an ideology in terms of running a tech business, but he has the ability to avoid the sort of crowd think or whatever that industries can fall into and just sort of speak independently. And he has some really, really good ideas in that book, which, which I think are also just really, really cool. Yeah, that's uh, I need to read that one again. I read that in like 2016 or something like that, maybe a little bit later, but it's it's been too long now. And I, I feel like when you go back and read those books, you know, five something years later, you always walk away with something completely different. So I'm going to move that one up my list to uh, to reread again. Yeah, totally. It's funny when you read a book, there's a couple of books that I come back to over and over again, you know, because it really depends on like, you know, when you're reading a book, it's not just the book, it's also the reader, right? And so like, I've come back to Lean Startup several times. First is like someone just getting started in tech and then someone who's like been in a more, as far as more experience investing and, you know, now as a founder. And it's funny because you do take different things away from it every time. Yeah. My secret is I use different colored highlighters. So there's this book called Traction. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's like the entrepreneur's operating system that we've used for our company. And I've been reading that now for like many, many years. And I can go through and see like the areas that I highlighted back in, you know, 2015 with an orange highlighter. It's like, wow, that was meaningful to me back then. Like, that's not useful at all. And then there's other stuff where I'm like, how did I miss this? How did I not highlight this? So it's it's fun seeing this you know, book just get destroyed over the years and how different things hit at, uh, at different times. That's right. What was I thinking? Yeah, totally. 100%. Nice. Well, let's dive a little bit deeper into the company. So can you take me back to the early days when you were talking about the idea and throwing around, you know, starting this company with your co-founder or co-founders? What were those early conversations like? And what made you guys say, yep, this is it. Let's do it. Yeah. So my co-founder and I have a, it's interesting. We found, we both found ourselves together at the intersection of two sort of really important things that, that both informed where we were going to go with Senlytic. So I think I mentioned we met when you were at, you know, AI school, we were doing master's degrees in machine learning and data science. So we'd been, at the time that actually came out, the famous paper, you know, attention is all you need, which kind of underpins the development of the transformer, which is what is 
the operating unit of every sort of large language model today, that came out while we were studying together. So we've actually had a, a very front row seat to the dawn of these, you know, generative AI large language models. And, you know, we've played with the great, 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 great grandparents of GPT-4 and everything in between. The other thing that we did together is sort of halfway through that program, we started a consultancy, data science consultancy, where we would sort of, it was kind of full stack data support, everything from setting up data pipelines all the way through to data-driven strategy. So we were actually working with dozens of companies from startups to Fortune 500s, basically, and we had a, had a front row seat to how they used or failed to use their data. And we saw at the time, there was a very common, you know, the streams converged at one point, which is that there had been tremendous advancements in data pipelines over the past couple of years. Every company has more data than ever before, but nobody's really using it to its full capacity, right? And the reason for that is actually a lack of great tools for the end user. When you're a big nerd like me and you're good at Python or SQL or whatever, it was remarkable how fast we could actually go from like, you know, cold, cold, cold to like the most well-informed person in the room by just doing a couple hours of data exploration, you know, as consultants. But when you don't have those tools at your disposal, it's actually really, really tough to like make sense of your data, right? So that's the kind of convergence of the two things we saw is like the world needs better self-serve tools, uh, especially for like business intelligence. And then we saw, we could see the groundswell was beginning or the, the I just pick it up for where this AI tech was going to go. And, you know, that just kind of, even at the time, it kind of felt like you're in your wraps and you can feel the, the, the stream is speeding up before the waterfall. And, uh, you know, you can just kind of see on the horizon that it, if you just scale up the compute, you scale the data size, like there's going to be tremendous things are going to happen with this tech. So those two things converge, right? Which is kind of weird. We both happen to be working on both of those things at the same time. And we both happen to be people, you know, with tons of mutual respect and very, very complementary skill sets. And from that, all of that happening together is kind of a Six Sigma event. Uh, Zenlytic was born. And yeah, so Zenlytic, long story short, it's a business intelligence tool you can talk to. It's a, you know, full featured BI platform, but it also has this AI powered data analyst that's basically like having an email with like someone on your data team, except they never sleep and they're always on and they're instant replies. So I guess all those things together sort of led to us building that. We've been doing that for since before the revolution started in December with, like I said, the progenitors, the grandparents of some of the modern LLMs. And there was always sort of chat functionality in the tool. Then in December, ChatGPT came out powered by 3.5. And within an hour of that coming out, we had just seen the capabilities of that tech. And we said, okay, it's time to accelerate and double down on this. So we just continue to focus and refine, you know, that language powered experience. And we've been cranking full steam ahead. The tech has been cranking full steam ahead at a pace that I've never seen in my career in tech. Like just the pace of this change is sort of eye-watering. And yeah, so now we're actually, you know, up to like very, very powerful modern tools that can, you know, replace a conversation with a data atlas. They can, they can pass a Turing test, you know. And that is this... Are the companies that are using this, do they not have a team of data analysts and this is, you know, giving them that function at least, or is it optimizing teams that already have data analysts in place? Uh, most have the data teams in place, usually smaller teams, but some don't. And I would say the more just in case it's the latter, actually, because you're like, all right, if they have data teams, then why don't we just email them? But if you're a data person, you know, at a mid-sized organization, you kind of have three jobs, right? So like, your first job is like building and maintaining the tools. So you set up these, you know, data pipelines, business intelligence tools. The second is, you know, helping with these sorts of questions. And the third is sort of deeper analytics. So this is running, you know, more advanced experimentation and sort of statistical 
rigor around experiments and A-B tests and things like that. So I could call like, just bucket those into advanced analytics. And data people, it turns out that they actually love, they obviously love to do number three. They actually love to do number one as well. They love building these tools for the team. The only thing they really hated the second one, which is sort of like, you know, answering those data questions for the team or building the data tickets. Also, they spend the vast majority of the time on the second one. You know, they probably spend 80% of their time on that. Oh, hey, I've got a quick data poll. Can you help me with this? Can you put this on a dashboard? And then they've got to crowd out the rest of their time between building the tools and the advanced stuff after they settle all those quick data polls. So it's a bit of both. Mm, got it. Makes a lot of sense. And who are the companies that you're working with? You don't have to name names, but is there like a general bucket? Is it e-commerce brands? Is, is that fair to say? E-commerce is one of our sort of biggest heads. The reason for that is because we started working exclusively with e-commerce businesses. And we did that because one of the big problems, the reason that you know data teams get a bad rap is because people say that they have trouble solving specific problems of the end users because they're not close enough to the domain knowledge. You know, like there's, that's where that friction sort of happens is because the data teams are not expert performance marketers or they're not experts in sales ops or anything like that. Uh, they're experts in data. So the reason we chose sort of commerce exclusively, we actually turned off everything else. We said, no, only commerce businesses was because we wanted to get close to the problems of the commerce business and understand, you know, their day to day and work really closely with all the loops that you'd expect from a commerce company from acquisition, conversion, retention are the big three and then like inventory management. And then, you know, we got to live and breathe those same problems, but we did that at the start for a while and commerce will always be a big part of the companies we work with. As most recently as the revolutions have been happening, I guess, we've seen a lot of interest from other verticals as well. So lots from consumer tech, increasing amounts from SaaS businesses now. So we made a decision to drop the official commerce moniker uh, and just make that sort of an unofficial thing. And, you know, we work with a lot of commerce businesses, but now it's sort of broad. And then I'd say, yeah, we work with companies that are generally mid-market just because we we like the mid-market sales cycles versus long enterprise sales cycles. But I'd say the sweet spot for for us is something like, our customers mostly have revenues between sort of 15 and $500 million a year. Mm. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. And are there any metrics or numbers that you can share that just highlight some of the growth and traction that you're seeing today? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the way that we really measure our success right now as a seed stage business is with engagement, which is very high. And, you know, we see brands are using this tool. We've seen like six, seven hour sessions and things like that. And we see people using it many, many times a day. And so that's great. But if you want to track, you know, growth, I guess the biggest number, I don't know y-axis for you, but I'll say that we're we're about 6x on the year so far in terms of ARR. So I think we can do much better than a straight line basis for the last two-thirds of the year as well. So yeah, just lots and lots of growth. I think that has been driven by several factors. First, broadening out beyond e-commerce. And the other thing, of course, is just lots of enthusiasm for what's happening with AI, large language models, the capabilities of this, the really, really remarkable tech happening right now. And from an AI perspective, what are you doing to stand out? Because it's there's just so much noise. You know, everyone is talking about AI. Everyone's changing their domains to end in dot AI. So what are you doing to stand out and rise above all that noise and make sure that you know, people understand that you're not just using this 
for marketing and sales. You know, it's not just BS. It's something real there. <laughs> totally right. Also, by the way, I'm sure there's someone right now in like the domain office or whatever, like the office of the registrar. And I think it's the Dutch Antilles. Or maybe it's Antilles. I think it's Antilles. They're like the dot A-I-T-L-D just like patting themselves on the back. And they're like, yes, I'm a genius. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just moving you made names like crazy. Yeah, I know. It's funny. I mean, so there's a couple of things. The first thing is actually, this is a bit of an aside as well, but it's the, the hardest part is actually not really differentiating. The hardest part is keeping up. And I think I mentioned before, the pace of this change is like nothing I've ever seen. And I don't think people fully appreciate how fast this is happening because like, so when I was a kid, I watched the dawn of the internet, right? And that took years and years and years and years. I remember logging into my like, you know, text only telnet and then like trying Netscape like three years after that. And then like, you know, CSS came out another four years after that. So like that was a slow progress. The mobile revolution, you know, there was several years between the launch of the iPhone and the launch of the app store, for instance, right? And that was on kind of like a yearly cycle. We're seeing stuff happening. You were seeing stuff happen day by day with AI. And it's it's just remarkable how much is happening. And, and you know, there doesn't really even seem to be any sign of things slowing down. So that is unprecedented. So I think that's, that's the real hard part. But back to your question of how do we differentiate? I think the real way to differentiate is not to be an AI business at all. The real way to differentiate is to solve a problem that happens to be using AI. And I guess that's our focus. We're lucky in the sense that we have been doing this since before AI was cool. So it's not really that novel for us. But we just focus on, I mean, our mission, our goal is to pass that Turing test, right? So it's to make that conversation feel like an instant always on data analyst. So you can sort of push the boundaries of what's possible in self-serve. Those are all really, really valuable things, but nothing in that mission actually says the word AI, right? So I think that's the first part of it. I think the second thing too is that a lot of the bandwagon jumpers are not acknowledging the limitations of the technology, right? And, you know, while this tech is very, very powerful, it's also not a panacea, right? There's certain things it can't do. And, you know, you can still, these tools still hallucinate, for instance, or whatever. Like there's, there's still lots of limitations of the tech. And if you don't have a good understanding of the limitations, then you end up being just one other tool in that sea of, you know, thin wrappers over the OpenAI API or the Google Bard API or whatever, right? And I'd say that right now the, the vibe in sort of Ventureland is like, don't be a thin wrapper. How can you avoid being a thin wrapper? Uh, a lot of those tools, I think either will struggle or have already started struggling because they've already been eaten by the developments of the foundation models, right? There are a bunch of tools that were doing AI web browsing and it's like, yeah, you can now, you know, OpenAI can't browse the web. And now this is a browser with AI built in. And then, you know, three days later, which is like, you know, 18 months in AI dog years, three days later, OpenAI launches, you know, what the web browser capability. And it just makes the startups all completely obsolete. So I would say that, you know, you have to understand the limitations and you have to understand where the tech is going. And you don't just have to be a thin wrapper. How does that manifest in our particular situation? I'd say that there is about a bajillion different companies trying to, you know, build what we're building. I would say about, you know, 999 sub-bajillion of those are doing something called text-to-SQL, which is exactly that. It's a thin wrapper where you ask OpenAI just to convert something into SQL. That doesn't work. So like in, in that case, that's probably accurate like about 90% of the time, which is fine. I guess if you're, you know, trying to write poetry or something with ChatGPT, but when you're doing data analytics and you're building board reporting off of this, 90% of the time is absolutely terrible, right? So like you can't have that sort of reliability or that, you know, they can't achieve the scale that you can with other methodologies. So, you know, our approach is instead to, 
you know, utilize parts of those LLMs, but we deeply, deeply integrate them with all the other tech that we've built. And getting really specific, we integrate it with something called a semantic layer. A semantic layer is like a really nerdy thing that takes your business's metrics and sort of translates it into data speak and like in, you know, the locations in a data warehouse. By doing both of those things at once, you end up with something that's way, way greater than the sum of its parts, you know? And the LLMs provide the comprehension. The semantic layer provides the consistency. And the overlap of those things together is really where you start getting that sort of always on instant analyst deal. Mm, makes sense. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because I feel like there is just a major trust issue. And yeah, I can speak through like on our end, you know, we're, we're a podcast production studio. So we do a couple hundred episodes every month. And we started playing around with ChatGPT, and I saw it. I was like, man, this is sick. This is going to replace our writers. We're going to save a lot of cost. And we were using it or you know, started playing around with having it create show notes for us. And we got through a few of them. And then I was, you know, I'm, I'm going to fact check it and just make sure. And it turns out it was just totally making stuff up. You know, like it was pulling stuff that wasn't from the transcript. It was just making things up. And it was like partially accurate, but it also was making stuff up, which was like, not ideal. So we had to abandon those efforts. And I think other people have had very similar experiences with ChatGPT. So I have to imagine that harms you in a way, right? If that's what people's experience has been with ChatGPT, they hear about your tool, then they would think, oof, sounds cool, but what if it's wrong? What if it makes stuff up like ChatGPT does? So how do you navigate that? And how do you educate customers to make sure that they understand that it's, you know, it is very different? Yeah, 100%. And by the way, if you ever want to do something fun, uh, you just, you know, chilling with a beer in the evening, go ask ChatGPT to write your biography. And like my wife and I did that uh, a few nights ago. And, you know, she got her biography back and it talked a lot about her time at Goldman Sachs and like her career progression there and who she worked with and you know, just in great detail about her time at Goldman. And my wife has never worked for Goldman Sachs before. Uh, <laughs> so like you'll get funny stuff like that happening. And it's funny, I know one of our, in our show notes, we talk about like, uh, question, this will dovetail nicely in a question, which I think you're probably going to ask later, which is like, what has been your greatest challenge, you know, going to market with an innovative product? And I think this actually covers that nicely. You know, I think there's actually at the end of the day, there's kind of two types of, of startups, right? There's, there's ones that are trying to convince you that their solution is the best in like a known set, you know, and it's like, hey, we know that CRMs work, we're the best CRM because of X. The other type is people that have to convince, they're trying to convince you that this new solution is possible, right? That it works. And it's like, hey, we have this very, very new technology that no one's ever done before. And there's not lots of companies doing it. So like there's those two sets, the ones with lots of companies doing it, the ones with not many companies doing it. And the latter category is challenging because people are inherently skeptical that it's going to work. In our case, that is one of the manifestations that happens is like, yeah, they hear about hallucination. They hear about, you know, how, you know, like, is, is this going to be a problem for a data-driven tool? And it's real. So like we had to spend a bunch of time saying that showing that this is reliable, basically. The onus is on us to do that. I guess our our solution to that has been to open our product up and you know show people our product as early and as fast and as often as possible. So like our, our objective is really to get to a demo in pretty much sort of every salesy call. And that's whether it's meeting with an investor, meeting with uh, a potential sort of new user or in a sales call or meeting with a potential new team member in a hiring process. Or just having someone visit the website. You know, Paul knows our website is basically a giant demo with a website wrapped around it. Our goal is to get people in front of the product as quickly as possible. So we can show you, you know, like, like put the onus on us to deliver it. We want to make it as easy as possible to show you that this works. In our case, people will go ahead and use that demo and they'll understand, they'll see the reliability firsthand. Uh, they'll understand some of the work that we've done around uh, 
uh, like I said, this sort of semantic layer under the hood. What we've, what we've essentially done is we've kind of chopped off the head of a large language model and sort of wired it deeply into you know a highly structured semantic layer of a business intelligence platform. So that thing is hardwired. It's mechanically impossible for it to go off the rails, basically. And that's that's not an easy task, but we've accomplished it, and uh, and people can see for it, see it for themselves. So like every single uh, you know when you're a founder, every call's a sales call. But I approach I approach every sales call in any capacity with the mindset of okay, what can we do to show this person you know how awesome this new tech is and how well it works. And what are your views when it comes to your market category? It sounds like BI tool is just very broad. No code analytics also feels very broad. How are you thinking about the market category that you're in? Yeah, well, so yeah, I would I would call ourselves uh, business intelligence for sure. It does feel broad, I suppose. Uh, it's an interesting category because it is, in a way, it's not the kind of category that VCs usually to get involved in because it's pretty mature, right? It's been around for a long, long time. There's a lot of people doing it. We've had some big changes in the industry, though, that have actually made it a lot less broad than it feels like. And that's basically a couple of the biggest, biggest sort of behemoths in the room. For example, Tableau, Looker, a couple others basically have been acquired, right? And in those acquisitions, it's left a bit of a vacuum in the greater BI landscape. So like, you know, Tableau is, you know, I can, in my opinion, it's kind of increasingly focused on visualizing Salesforce data. So like you see the Salesforce influence after that acquisition, for example. At the same time, data pipelines have advanced a ton. So that like, you know, there's been this quiet revolution in data warehouses and I don't know the status. I think it's something like in the last five years, the amount of corporate data that's being sort of held has gone from like 20 to 65% has gone into the cloud into like data warehouses like Snowflake. So there's all these tools that are sort of storing and processing and cleaning that data. At the same time, there's a decreasing number of tools available for consuming it. So, and at the same time, I like to think as a VC in terms of like secular shifts. I think actually when people pitch VCs, they answer two of the big three whys very well. And, you know, so like, why is this product useful? And like, why are you the right team? People are pretty good at answering those questions but they often miss the most important one, which is the why now, right? And it's like, what's changed? You know, why hasn't this happened 20 years ago? If you look at the sort of BI landscape through a why now lens, you realize that like the history of BI has actually been like increasing, sort of monotonically increasing amounts of self-service, right? So people could do more and more with their own BI tool without having to code as the tools got more sophisticated. And they always kind of expand out to the capabilities of the tech. It's like as good as the tech can, can make it. And so just for example, like, you know, like when cloud data warehouses came out, you know, Looker was able to let people drill down into their data with better detail. The tech that's happening now is AI, right? LLMs. And it's like, this is the secular shift. And I think most industries are going to have to start asking these questions. It's like, how, how does our industry change now that we have the capabilities like this that have just come out of nowhere that we'd never had before? And, you know, when I think about BI and I'm like, how is this going to change? The answer to me is self-evident, which is that Every one of those past generations of BI tools, they ultimately default to a conversation with that data analyst. That's the fail state, right? So it's like your dashboards doesn't give you the answers you need. Oh, yeah, better go email Sally and data team. It ends with that email. And, you know, with these LLMs and with this technology, we can, for the first time ever, you know, emulate that directly inside the tool and highly integrate it with everything. And again, make it happen instantly and make it, you know, happen so that it's not a, a week long back and forth of, of emailing. And, you know, I just, see the opportunity where this new tech has unlocked the capabilities to do this. We've, we've seen the pent-up demand for this over the last 10 years of emailing data people. So it just feels to me self-evident that 
even though it's a very broad space, I, I think the opportunity is there. And final question, since I know we're, uh, we're way over on time, but I want to give you a chance to answer it. Let's talk about vision. So can you paint a picture for us of what the next three to five years is going to look like for the company? hundred percent. So I think that at the pace of change right now, a five-year vision feels like another universe, frankly, first. So like that's a long, long ways away. And when we're measuring developments in days, the five years feels like a long ways away. But I would say that our goal is to be sort of the next step in that evolution of BI platforms. And, you know, I, I think about the history of it. And again, you know, in the beginning, there was Tableau, you know, and 10 years ago or whatever, there's Tableau. And Tableau was the first person to really crush great and building great dashboards. And everyone flocked to Tableau and it, be, you know, it be generated $16 billion in value uh, at Exit because it built nice dashboards, right? So like that's the demand for that is just very strong. After that, you know, came Looker. Looker was the first tool to really popularize the semantic layer in modern history. And with that, it was, you know, Looker had dashboards, but then they also had the ability, you know, explore from here. You can drill in and slice and dice and just explore your data in a visual way. You know, that led Looker to a $3 billion exit to Google. And, you know, I think we're due for the next wave now. And, you know, I think the next wave is, again, it, it builds on the capabilities of the previous tools. So we also have, you know, innovated on Tableau's dashboarding approach. We've innovated on Looker's exploration approach. And now we have the third leg of the stool, which again, I think is a chat, AI, you know, a, a natural language interface for data. So when I look at the future, I actually look to the past of like, what did these tools, you know, how did they grow and what did they become in the past? And, you know, my goal for Zenlytic, if we do our job right, is to become, you know, the next step in that wave. Amazing. I love it. All right. We're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? You can hit me up on Twitter at Ryan Jansen, one word, two S's, or uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I love connecting with people. I would say in general, you're going to find slightly more startup-y, sassy focused uh, stuff that I like to connect about on LinkedIn and slightly nerdier stuff that I like to connect about on Twitter. So uh, you can self-select on your nerdiness level, or you could find you know the whole team at zenlytic.com. Awesome. Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about what you're building and just make this a really fun conversation. I really yeah, enjoyed it. I think our audience is going to as well. Thanks a ton, Brett. And thanks for having me again. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.